Hello and welcome back to the Government Technology Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Tierney, and today I'd like to start by asking you a question. When was the last time you had to prove you were you? Was it when you applied for a loan, applied for a job, tried to renew your passport? Chances are that at one point or another, you've been asked to provide all manner of documents and numbers to prove that beyond reasonable doubt, you are the person you claim to be. Now let me ask you a second question. What if you didn't have those documents? Maybe they were lost, maybe they were destroyed, or maybe the name on your birth certificate isn't yours anymore. Traditional methods of identity verification have long relied on established credit files and public records to verify individuals. However, people that don't have a presence in those records have often been excluded from online access to their governments, leading many to wonder, is there a better way to verify our identities? Joining me today to help answer that question are two identity experts from IDME, Wes Turbeville and Mayor Work. Wes is the Vice President of Federal at IDME, where he leads delivery of the company's service to federal agencies as they work to protect over 70 distinct citizen-facing applications. We are also joined by IDME's Director of State and Local Government and Education, Mayor, whose purview includes unemployment insurance benefits, fraud, digital equity, and security. Both Wes and Mayor are veterans, having served in the U.S. Navy, which they have assured me means they know a thing or two about identity verification. Wes, Mayor, thank you both for joining us today. Really appreciate you having us, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Really excited to be here. So let's just start at the very beginning. Why is it important for people to be able to verify their identity? Yeah, that's a great question. In short, I think it enables individuals to access goods and services online. Uh, and it allows them to do that in a safe way um, but by also preventing the theft of government benefits. And so I'll add a little bit more color, you know, and some numbers around that. Over the course of the pandemic, you know, what we saw was a real acceleration of the adoption of digital services. Um, McKinsey and Company estimates that it was about a three to five year acceleration of, of the penetration of digital services uh, over physical services. Um, they've come out with a couple of estimates. One is that the, the share of customer interactions on digital platforms jumped from 41 to 65% through July of 2020. Um, and they think the share of that was actually even higher for public sector services, um, reaching 90% by April of 2021. So while that acceleration was happening and people were moving online, there was also a real spike in identity theft. Um, in its latest Consumer Sentinel data book, the FTC reported that identity theft tied to government benefits was up 2,920% um, over the course of the pandemic. And that, you know, that to me is just like a staggering increase in the amount of identity theft. And what this comes as a result of is the major data breaches. You know, we've all seen in the press OPM, um, Equifax, there was 147 million Americans during the pandemic, it was Vertifor. The one last summer was T-Mobile of around 50 million Americans. And that just means that individuals' information is, is out there and it's available. Um, and on the dark web, the, the law of supply and demand applies just as it does you know, out in the real world. And so with this information being really available, what you see is they're actually being, um, you know, it's becoming cheaper to essentially be a fraudster. And so there's been some great research by the Identity Theft Resource Center that shows that the, the price of a social security number on the dark web is uh, between free and $2. 
um, you know, this used to be the sort of the gold standard of the thing that you wanted to protect the most. But now at that low of a price point, what that tells us is that, you know, this information is out there. You know, by contrast, um, and just to put this into perspective, a, um, a hacked eBay account with a good seller rating can fetch around $1,000 on the dark web. So um, what this goes to show you is that, you know, people's information is out there, it's available, and it's inexpensive. Um, and that's a really scary thing to hear. And so, you know, with the availability uh, and low cost of personal information, you know, online, uh, what it is today, it just means it's really easy for a fraudster to pretend to be somebody else. And so, you know, government agencies like GAO and NIST, you know, as early as 2016, 17, 18, recognized this and it started taking actions to, you know, protect individuals. Um, and one of the measures that NIST took was uh, to essentially update their standards and their digital identity guidelines to essentially hold a higher bar for identity verification online. Um, and that the old ways of doing things just weren't as effective in this, in this new environment where people's information is out there and available uh, on the dark web. Right. So how has identity verification worked in the past and what's different about how it's done today? Thanks, Kevin. So Wes kind of got into a little bit about the fact that things have changed. And what's changed is that in the past, most agencies really relied on an individual's presence in public records or presence in credit records. So Kevin, I'm sure that you've answered questions about like what kind of car you drove five years ago or what your zip code was in 2018 um, or something like that. So the problem is that there's a couple of fundamental issues with this approach. And one of the biggest challenges right now is that when you rely on credit bureaus or data brokers, there's millions of Americans who are actually credit invisible or who don't have a digital footprint online at all, or their information is actually wrong in records. I fall into this last category myself, so I uh, take this a little bit personally. But the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has estimated that there's actually like 26 million Americans who don't appear in credit histories at any of the three largest bureaus. And so they found that this shortcoming disproportionately impacts individuals who are Black, Hispanic, and low income. So because of that, and also uh, what Wes was mentioning about the just how rampantly available individuals' PII is um, online, on the dark web, etc., NIST instituted additional controls in 2017 when it revised the digital identity guidelines. So one of those, Identity Assurance Level 2, or uh, you know, what we call IAL2, requires the user to present two strong or one strong and two fair pieces of evidence. So I know it's getting a little bit technical here, uh, but a lot of folks are familiar with these already. And for the strong pieces of evidence, NIST goes on to recommend that the applicant actually has um, ownership of the claimed identity by confirming one of two ways. So they either do a physical comparison of the person to the image on the strong piece of evidence, which is you know typically a government issued ID, driver's license, passport, passport card, et cetera. Um, or a biometric comparison of the strongest piece of, uh, of evidence to the claimed identity. 
So for this one, most individuals in uh, the U.S. these days have camera phones, smartphones. They're very commonplace. So the industry has typically relied on a selfie to do this remote verification. But NIST also gives iris scans or fingerprints as examples. Um, they're not as common in consumer tech, so they're not used as much today. So I mentioned in my intro that there are some people who might you know, face complications when trying to prove their identity today. What are some of those common complications that prevent people from being able to verify their identity? I love this question, Kevin. So this is, I mentioned that I have, you know, a, a personal um, story here. And the reasons that folks may not be able to identify through traditional vendors is because perhaps they've had name changes. Uh, so someone who was recently married, for example, perhaps they've moved recently. Um, think of immigrants, recent university students, uh, people that have moved back because of the pandemic into their childhood homes. Uh, they could also not have much history of phone ownership. So young people who are establishing themselves, um, you know, they're, they're trying to do things on their own now. Think of Americans living overseas. Uh, I was actually a veteran who was stationed over in Europe. Europe. There's also a large number of bases over in the Pacific. And then also individuals who are unhoused or who don't have a home address. So my personal story is that I am not able to verify because my name is, I, I've, I was married and so my name has changed. And then my date of birth is also wrong in a couple of bureaus as well. So I have a very difficult time verifying through traditional means. And actually, one of the only ways that I've been able to verify is through IDME's video chat. And I was able to use that at Veterans Affairs to access my VA health benefits and other agencies as well. Something that we hear get bounced around a lot in the identity verification space is this concept of the passive identity solution. Can you describe what that looks like and what are some of the most common uh, disadvantages associated with it? Yeah, it's a great question, Kevin. Um, and I, you know, when we think about the models that exist out there, there's some that essentially, you know, ask the user to provide some information, the evidence, as, as Mayor talked about. But then there's others that is essentially collect information about you more passively in the background, and they provide a, a, a profile about you that can then be used to go verify your identity. And I think with some of those other models, there's two primary concerns that bubble to the surface. The first one is around privacy, and then the second one is around transparency. Um, so on privacy, some of the other models for identity verification can rely on um, building a, a profile of an individual by essentially hoovering up a bunch of data about that individual from either public records, from credit bureaus, by purchasing data from um, commercial data aggregators, buying it from DMVs, or scraping social media. And you know, these um, most of the time, the individuals don't actually know or realize that these companies have built profiles about them. Um, and there's limited ways that a user can consent uh, or or opt out of um, you know, opt out of, you know, being included in these, you know, large databases of profiles. And, you know, what this does is this, you know, to me highlights 
you know, a lot of privacy concerns um, that individuals have where they, they just don't know how often or how much their data is out there, who's using it, how often it's bought and sold, um, and for what purposes. And so, you know, with some of these more passive methods, you know, as you discover the fact that you might have a profile with them, it can actually also be hard to opt out as well. And so I think that's the, the first thing that, um, you know, is a disadvantage of going down a pathway of these passively built profiles on individuals versus asking a, a consumer to provide information. Because if you ask them to provide information, they know what they're giving up. And then in the case of IDME, we obviously don't buy or sell data. And then we only rely, um, or we only share data with the user's explicit consent. And we're very transparent about what data that, that we do share. Um, other, uh, the second point that I want to make or disadvantage of these passive solutions is on transparency, where here, if somebody is, is unable to verify, um, it's not actually clear to the user why they might have failed. They engage with an organization, um, but if they fail, they're rejected from an application, there's no real recourse for the user to take. It's not like they can follow up and say, hey, why did I fail? And is there something that I can do to, to fix it or, or clean up my record or answer some questions or engage with a customer support rep? And so there, there isn't a lot of transparency to the user about, you know, why they weren't able to complete the process or what they can do about it. Um, and I think, you know, the way IDME gets around that problem is with the um, more active model that we have where the consumer provides their information, it's very clear to us that if they aren't fail uh, or if they aren't able to complete the verification, what specific steps need to be taken in order to get them through to make sure that they have access to their benefits. And so this is one of the reasons why, you know, IDME offers um, three pathways by which somebody can be verified, you know, either self-serve with a video chat or in person. It's also why we have a 24-7, 365 customer support organization um, that's accessible by seven different channels. And what we found is that, you know, when people do encounter problems, having that support structure and having multiple pathways is the best way to ensure that you have, you can offer the most access to as many people as possible. And I'll chime in on that as well. It's incredibly frustrating as a consumer to go through a solution uh, or try to access a specific agency and then not be able to complete the process because you don't necessarily know what's wrong and not be offered a solution. Uh, the solutions that I've been offered, at, and, and I've had this happen to me four times in the last six months at different agencies, the more uh, that I interact with an, with an agency as an adult, as a mother who's trying to register my son for certain things, it's come up more often. So there are a couple of different things that I've been faced with that include either calling a help desk between the hours of eight and five, Monday through Friday. That's, you know, typically when I'm working. Uh, so that's very difficult for individuals to be able to do. There, I've also been given a link to a site where I've been asked to upload the front and back of my driver's license and my social security card. Uh, I have a lot of uncertainty with that, given the, just the prevalence of stolen credentials and documents that I see in my everyday job right now. Um, and, and that I had a lot of cybersecurity issues uh, with that issue, with that, you know, proposal uh, to be able to verify. 
And then there's also the burden that this places back on agencies of how to get individuals verified that, that aren't necessarily in records. So, you know, circling back to what Wes was talking about, about having these alternative options is, is something that I feel um, very passionately about because I've had to use them myself and it's the only way that I personally can verify. While Wes and Mayer both had a lot more to say about identity verification, that is going to do it for us here today. In part two of our podcast series, we will dive into the many ways that government agencies and the Department of Defense can maintain a comprehensive identity verification process while ensuring equitable access and data privacy for all applicants. To learn more about the best practices, lessons learned, and proven strategies for using innovative technologies to address the challenges faced by federal, state, and local governments, please visit governmenttechnologyinsider.com. I'm Kevin Tierney, and until we meet again, so long.